I started last week. Um, I started last week with an extract from the the rather fabulous book A Squash and a Squeeze. Um, and this week I thought about starting out by like jumping on this table at the front and saying, "Oh, captain, my captain." Um, but then I then I thought possibly the table wouldn't hold my weight, um, and that might ruin ruin the effect. But for those of you who uh, haven't seen Dead Poet Society, that that's where I'm gonna that's where I'm gonna start this week. I I may have mentioned a few hundred times to you that I'm really enjoying re-watching classic films with Anna, Hope and Athel now that they're old enough to watch them. And I've, we've done loads of these, but one of the ones that we did was Dead Poet Society. Um, now. Dead Poet Society follows the story of a, um, a professor played by Robin Williams who goes to work at a rather stuffy, formal boarding school. And he goes to, to teach this group of kids there. And, and in classic Robin Williams fashion, fashion, he turns up in the first lesson and he gets them to read out an extract from the book, uh, their, their, like, their, their book on poetry. And he says, right, rip that page out. And then rip the next page out. And eventually they just rip up the entire book. Because this is all far too formal and far too stuffy. And Robin Williams needs to teach these people to love poetry. And so he sets about, he sets about doing this. Um, and uh, there's a, there's a quite, quite a famous scene in it where he takes them all out to a courtyard. And he gets them all to walk around the courtyard. And what, what happens as they're walking around the courtyard is they all start to walk in the same pace. It turns into less of a walk and more into a march. Uh, and his point is that we, we, by nature, tend to conform. Like, that's what happens. You can't just walk at your own pace. If you put a group of people out there together, they'll all start walking in unison together. We, we conform uh, as, a, as a group. And his point is, we've got to resist that temptation to conform. We've got to learn to be our own self. Our, we've got to be true to who we are. We've got to be individuals. There's a there's a one of the boys in the class wants to uh, be in a local um, Amdram performance. Now it turns out that this is not acceptable to either the school or his rather stuffy parents. And but of course Robin Williams considers this to be an essential part of him being true to who he is. He he wants to act. He needs to act. And so he encourages it. And, and anyway, I'm going to stop there because otherwise I'll tell you the whole story. Uh, go 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 watch it um, at, at some point. It, it's it's pretty good. I really like Dead Poets Society. I really like Robin Williams' films. Um, but what I've noticed through the vast array of Robin Williams' films I've watched is that theme runs through pretty a huge chunk of his films. So Good Morning Vietnam is the story of a man who goes to a rather stuffy formal army thing and decides that he's not going to conform to what the army wants him to be, but he's going to fight to make everyone an individual within this army, which doesn't work terrifically well in armies. Um, but, but that's what he's going to do because people have to be their authentic self. They have to be the person that they want to be and they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be controlled by these external uh, people who are censoring them and controlling them and stopping them from being who they want to be. Hatch Adams, the story of a doctor who goes to a rather stuffy formal hospital where everybody tries to heal people in really boring ways and they're unwilling to consider humour at all. And he decides that this is not the way we should treat people. Instead, we should treat people through humour and compassion and we should fight against the system. So he sets up an unlicensed psychi psychiatric unit and he starts treating people and eventually it kind of goes wrong or does it? I don't know, but it, it happens. I could go on, like Goodwill Hunting, Hook, even, even Aladdin, 
the genie who needs to find freedom from his position in order to be the person that he's meant to be. They all have these elements of the same story. Now, on the face of them, they're quite different films. One's an animated cartoon about, uh, like, a genie, and the other one's uh, a film about a hospital, and the other one's a film about the army, and the other one's a film about the school. They're quite different films. When you, if you were just to look at them and describe the plot, you might not think, wait a minute, these are the same film just done over and over again. But they all have at the heart the same central idea. And I've often, I've often wondered whether that was a pressure that Robin Williams particularly keenly felt, given that he kept making films like this and given his kind of uh, struggles that he had throughout his life. I've often wondered whether he felt the pressure of society, that pressure of need to conform and uh, unable to be the person that he wanted to be. But anyway, I wanted, I wanted to start by that. Um, because I think we're, we're, in a, we're in a series at the moment looking through Daniel. And I just wanted to do two weeks, last week and this week, looking at apocalyptic literature. Because that's what happens at the end of Daniel. From Daniel 7 to 12, you get into this kind of unique kind of literature, which is called apocalyptic literature. It, it, it literally means kind of literature about the apocalypse, about the end of time. It, it's mainly made up of visions that explain or describe or show something about what life's going to look like prior to the end of time. So these are designed to help us understand what does life look like between Jesus' first coming that we celebrate at Christmas and when Jesus comes again and ushers in the new heavens and new earth. That's what it's about. Now, there aren't loads of passages in the Bible that are this kind of literature. It's mainly, not solely, but it's mainly the second half of Daniel, where we are now, and the book of Revelation. They're the main bits that, that have this kind of literature in it. So there's not loads of it in the Bible, but we are there. We're in the second half of, of Daniel. And what I think is interesting about all of the apocalyptic um, passages is that, like Robin Williams' films, the stories and images are quite different, but the central ideas are always the same. They work in quite a similar way. So if you, were to, if you were to draw the image of each of them, they'd look quite different. If you were to tell the story of each of them, they'd sound quite different. But the central ideas of all apocalyptic visions and apocalyptic literature in the Bible is basically the same. It has certain core elements that it really wants us to understand. And I want to suggest today that there are four key ideas in apocalyptic literature that God wants us to understand. And they're going to be repeated again and again in the sections um, that we've been looking at. I dealt with one of them last week. I want to highlight the other three this week. So that's where we're going. I'm going to tell you the four elements that I think lie at the heart of all of this kind of literature in the Bible. Uh, the first one that I talked about last week is the sovereignty of God. That's probably the single most important um, element of all apocalyptic literature. It's the thing that's emphasized over and over again, that whatever is happening in the world, whatever situations we find ourselves in that time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, God remains in control. He is seated above it, on the throne, overseeing it all, and nothing happens that is outside of his control. I think that is the number one central idea of apocalyptic literature, and I talked about it all last week, so I'm not going to do it again this week, um, but if you weren't here, you can always uh, grab it off the website and have a listen. But for the other three, 
I'm going to take us to Daniel 8. So if you've got a Bible, get it open in Daniel 8. I'm going to encourage you to do the same as I did last week. Visions are definitionally visual. Like that's the point of them. They are to be seen. And so you need to do as much as you can while I read this to visualize what's going on. The more you visualize it, the more you will engage with it as it's meant to be engaged. This isn't an oracle. It's not a letter. It is a vision. It's meant to be seen. And so the, what I'm encouraging you to do is just try and imagine what is being described here. However, whatever will help you do that, close your eyes, draw it on a piece of paper, whatever will help you visualize it, try and do that as we read it, because that will help us get to the heart of what's going on in these visions. So, Daniel 8, did you have a page number for me, Ian? 894, brilliant, thanks, um, the official page number giver now. 894, if you've got it, and um, one of the Bibles on the table. Daniel, I'm going to read it for you now, and let me encourage you, just try and visualize what Daniel sees in his vision. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was behind the Ulai Canal, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly... A goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and it charged at it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and, to, and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. And it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the Lord, it, of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. 
while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represented four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. If you're someone here today who's not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, you've never done that for yourself, you're probably thinking, what have I just read? But you may also be wondering, what difference would being a Christian actually make to your life? And what difference would it actually make for you to really follow Jesus? Like, how would it change your life? Because before you decide whether or not you're going to follow Jesus or not, whether you're going to be one of his people, whether you're going to commit to being Christian, you need to know, or at least have some idea, well, what impact would it have on my life? Now, that's fair enough. Isn't that what we'd all want to know before making major life decisions? To have some sense of, well, how is this going to change my life? If I become a Christian, will I be happier? If I become a Christian, will my life be easier? Will I be more fulfilled? Will I be more at peace? These are legitimate questions for us to consider. These are things that we'd want to know. And of course, how you answer that question will then go on to impact what you think and is a normal Christian life should look like and then how you experience being a Christian. Whatever you think being a Christian would do to your life, however you think it would change it, that's going to be what you measure your life against. Well, I thought it would do this thing, but it actually did this thing. Did it live up to your expectations? So for those of you who are Christians today, like how, how is your Christianity going for you? Is it living up to your expectations? Is it what you thought it would be? Has it delivered what you hoped it would? Maybe you're like, well, I'm a Christian. And I thought that when I came to follow Jesus, I'd be more at peace. But actually, I still feel really anxious. Maybe, maybe you're a Christian and you, you're sitting there thinking, I thought that when I came to follow Jesus, my life would be easier. But actually, it just seems really hard. Maybe you're someone here who would say, I'm a Christian and, and I thought that Jesus promised me freedom from sickness and guilt and death, but I still get sick and I still feel guilty and people around me still die. 
You see, what, what I want to do as we look through Daniel 8 is I want to do that thing that people always talk about of like managing your expectations. You know, like when you, I don't know, you take your car in the garage and you think it's going to take half an hour and they say, going to take four days, it's going to cost you. You know, managing your expectations, just bringing them back down so that when they come back to you and say it's actually going to cost you all your savings and it's going to take forever, you're prepared for that. I think these, these visions, these apocalyptic di- visions, and, this, and the one we're looking at this week uh, included, are about setting our expectations for what life, as one of God's people, will look like during our time on earth. That's what I think they're about. They're about all of us here having right expectations of what does it look like to be one of God's people living on earth in the time between Jesus coming 2,000 years ago and whenever he returns. And I think there's three realities that are highlighted for us in Daniel 8 and and in a whole host of these. I'm going to, let's go through them. First one. During our lives, there will continue to be significant evil and suffering. That's the first thing you need to be prepared for. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and succeed in whatever he does. God's sovereignty and his salvation does not mean that we get to live in a world without suffering and evil. If God is, so often people will say to me, to you probably had it said to you, if God is real, how come there's so much evil in the world? How come there continues to be so much suffering? Someone, I'd be amazed if no one's ever asked you that question. I guess most of us have ourselves asked that question a number of times. And it's worth saying that we know some of the answer to that. Because the Bible gives us some information by which we can answer it. So we know some of the answers to that question. But some of it does remain a mystery. There's some elements of it that we go, I don't know why this evil and this suffering continues. Why God doesn't step in and prevent that. I don't don't know the answer to that question. But what we do know from passages like Daniel 8, from all the apocalyptic literature, is that God has said we should expect that to be the case. That's what we know. We might not know why, but we know that God is very clear. For as long as we live on this earth, there will continue to be evil and suffering. But there's one thing which is clear in all the apocalyptic visions of the Bible. It's that until the very end, until Christ returns and the new heaven and earth are created, the world will be a place of evil and suffering. Not solely. It won't be as evil as it could be. There won't be as much suffering as there could be, but they will still be present. The world will continue to be full of people and rulers and authorities causing astounding devastation. If there's one thing we should expect, it's wars and famines and rumours of war and evil and violence and devastation. So I said I wanted to manage your expectations. Well, let's start here. I I 
often talk to people, Christians, who are asking, how come when I'm trying to follow God, my life still feels so hard? How come when I'm one of his people, when I'm, I'm living for him, I'm trying to obey him, how come there's still so much brokenness all around me? That bad things keep on happening. And part of the answer to that question is, well, what did you expect? What did you expect? Did you think it just all went away? Because if, if you did, you're going to be disappointed. Human evil and violence and destruction will continue throughout human history, and that means throughout your history. So that's the first thing that all these visions have in common, that evil and violence and suffering continue. They are a part of human history and will continue to be a part of human history until Jesus returns. That's the first. Here's here's the second. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. He, so this is the person we were just looking at, this, this ruler who's going to cause such devastation, he will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Okay, here's the second thing. So if the first thing is your life is going to continue to be impacted by evil and suffering, here's the second. There will continue to be opposition to God's people. It's the second thing that's in common throughout the apocalyptic literature. There there will continue to be opposition to God's people. There will continue to be those who set themselves up against God and against his people. They will tell lies. They will think they are better than us. They will think that they're better than God's. And they're going to take their stand not just against us, but against Jesus himself, against the Prince of Princes. If God is on the throne, it's easy to think, then how come I still get so much flack? If God is on the throne, then why is human history full of the blood of his people? If God is on the throne, then why do his people suffer so much? And again, we know some of the answers to that question, and some of it remains a mystery, but the visions tell us that we should expect it. If you're thinking, if you're someone here today and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, you've been weighing it up, thinking about it, not sure whether you really want to follow Jesus or not, you need to come into it with the right expectations. Knowing Jesus will not make you immune to the suffering and evil in the world. More than that, following Jesus will make you part of a group of people who throughout history have experienced significant opposition and persecution and who continue to experience it today. If you are someone here who is a Christian, but you are feeling the weight of the brokenness of the world around you, feeling like life is hard, maybe you're even someone here who's a Christian today experiencing some hostility for your faith, then this vision is for you. It's to remind you that that is how God has said it's going to be, right until he comes back. But what I want you to notice in the visions is that none of this is 
I don't know what the word is, but none of it's like linear. It's not always the same. Not all the beasts are the same. Not all of them are as violent as the other ones. Not all of them are as hostile as the others. We, we see that really clearly in the vision that we were looking at last week in Daniel 7. The, the bear seems to be more bloodthirsty than the lion. And the final beast with the horns and the iron teeth, he's more destructive than all the others. So it's always here. There is always violence and brokenness and suffering, but it's not always the same. Sometimes there's times of where it's much worse. Sometimes there's times where it's not quite as bad. Sometimes in history are just worse than others. And similarly, the opposition to God's people is not the same. So if you think about the vision we just had of this ram and the goat, it was, it was really only at the end, that final horn, that oppositions to God's people really came in. That was really what separated that, them from everything that had come before. There was still violence and evil before that, but it was that final horn that really went after God and his people. You see, it's not always the same throughout history. There's periods where... It, the opposition isn't quite as hostile as it is at other points. So there's, there's two. So I've, I said there were four. I think there's four central ideas in all apocalyptic literature. One is the sovereignty of God. The second is the ongoing presence of human evil and suffering. The third is ongoing opposition to God's people. I, I, let, let, me, let me give you the fourth. We see the fourth in verse 25. The end of verse 25, we read this. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. And in chapter 7, we read a, a similar idea. We read, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Here's the final strand of apocalyptic literature, which we need to understand, and that is that ultimately God's people triumph. That's, 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 they're the four central themes of all apocalyptic literature. God is sovereign. Human evil and suffering continues. Opposition to God's people continues, but ultimately, God's people win through suffering. You see, ultimately, at the end of every vision, evil does not win. Violence does not prevail. Hatred and destruction and opposition to God is always defeated at the end of every vision. And it's not defeated, we're told here, it's not defeated by human strength. We, we, don't, we don't defeat it by human progress, by learning to be a bit nicer, by establishing new treaties, by better education or, or any of those things. No, it's defeated, but not by human power. It's defeated because God himself steps in and defeats it. God steps into all the evilness and brokenness and violence. And, and rather than contributing to it in the person of Jesus, he stands against it and he offers healing and forgiveness and gentleness. God steps into all the opposition to God's people and rather than joining in or just crumbling under the pressure, he withstands it all. On the cross, he takes all of the evil, all of the violence, all of the destruction of this world on himself, and he suffers torture and death. On the cross, he takes all the opposition to God that exists, all of mankind's hatred of God, all of Satan's schemes and powers, all of the injustice and the sin, and just when it looks like it was, going to be, it was too much for him, just when it looks like the forces of evil have actually defeated him and breath departs from his body, just at that point, he actually wins his great victory. 
He's resurrected, triumphing over all evil, over all suffering, over all violence, over all opposition to God. You see, that's why that's the story of all the apocalyptic visions, because that's God's story. That God's people triumph, but they triumph through suffering. That's how we win. Why did God's people suffer throughout history? Well, because that is God's way of triumphing over evil. It's through the suffering of Jesus that sin and death and Satan are defeated. And it's through the suffering of his people that they finally come to know and enjoy the kingdom God has prepared for them. I want to suggest that all apocalyptic literature is about that. Whether it's lambs or dragons or goats or flying leopards or whatever it is, it's all fundamentally about this. It's always about the same thing. It's about the fact that there will continue to be human evil and violence in the world, that God's people will continue to be opposed, but that in the midst of all of that, God remains sovereign and ultimately his people will be victorious through suffering just as Christ was victorious through suffering. That's always what it's about. Read the book of Revelation, it's always what it's about. Jesus, when he talks about the end times, it's what it's about. Daniel, it's what it's about. And the question I just want to end with is why? Why bother? Why bother with these weird visions and this, these ideas about what's going to happen between now and then? Why? I, I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you what I think the answer is, and I'll try and explain it because it is, it is a technical uh, kind of idea. But it's, it's to protect us from what theologians called over-realized eschatology. That's what it's to protect us from. Let me explain. It's to protect from a view that says... Because God has defeated evil and suffering and all these things in Jesus on the cross, that that should be our experience right now. It's so easy to buy into that. There's a risk that we think if Christ has defeated all these things, then, what, then I should experience that thing right now. This is the kind of theology which says Christians should not experience sickness anymore because Jesus defeated it. It's the kind of theology which says Christians will not sin anymore because Jesus has defeated it. It's the kind of theology which says if we just have enough faith, any sickness can be healed and our life should be simply full of joy and prosperity and blessings. Every vision we have about the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming tells us the opposite is true. Every single one of them. Yes, there will one day come a day when all our sicknesses are healed, when all our brokenness is restored, when all evil is destroyed, where we live in a state of perfect joy, but that only comes right at the end. Until that day, if there's one thing God wants us to be ready for, it's that evil remains, that God's people still suffer, and that it's in the midst of that evil and through that suffering that his final victory will ultimately be won. That's what these visions are to prepare us for. Let me pray as we finish.